Okay, well, welcome. Um, I'm Beverly Skeggs, the director of the Atlantic Fellows Programme, and we recruit, I'm hoping there's some here, we recruit fellows from all around the world uh, who study inequality and fight inequality, so it's a kind of perfect segue into having Chris Hughes here, uh, whose new book, Fair Shot, he will be talking about with questions from us. Um, it's a very important intervention at the moment when inequality is intensifying massively, when there's been this huge redistribution of wealth upwards, when there's been this massive stagnation of incomes for, uh, since 1979, key year, people know what happened in 1979, um, and a massive decrease in wealth and income for the majority of the population. I just want to mention before we kick off that within the Inequalities Institute, which the Atlantic Fellows Programme is a part, we have a range of events that go on throughout the year. Next week it's pretty intense. We have the Fight Inequality Alliance have organised for the elders to be here. Um, and we're hoping we're going to get uh, Grasa um, Makal, uh, Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon talking to young activists who are fighting inequality. So that's a, uh, a really good event next Tuesday, the 17th of April. The, the Wednesday that follows this, we're going to have a discussion on cultural struggles in inequality. So that's on Wednesday the 18th. And then on May the 1st, we're having an event on uh, the labor of care. May the 1st of, is, of course, um, May Day. So we have to do something on labor. So, so we're having something on the labour of care, work, law and finance. So I'm going to kick off the debate and it's going to be, uh, Chris would like us to ask questions, have much more of a discussion and a dialogue. Chris wants me to say in this order, <laughs> so, so it's different to how you probably know of him. He's the co-founder of the Economic Security Project, which is really worth checking out to see what they're doing and been involved in experiments in different places in the US. He then was, no, not then, prior to that, he was obviously a co-founder of Facebook. <laughs> so that's where he gets the position he's in now. And then, of course, he's one of the architects of the Obama digital campaign. So we're very, very, very pleased to have Chris here to discuss inequality. Then, on my far left is Natalie Fenton, who is an activist who's been fighting many forms of inequality for many years and is currently involved in Hacked Off um, and is here in her capacity as an activist because she's taking action short of a strike for what may prove to be the longest strike in British history by British academics. Uh, has been remarkably successful so far. So I'm officially on strike. <laughs> <laughs> She's here in her capacity as an activist. And then next to Natalie is Cam Sandu. Cam is a journalist, an activist, who's also been campaigning around inequality for a long time and is the editor of Real Media, uh, a really important news source on all sorts of issues on inequality, who specialises in data analysis, inequality and corporate accountability. So we should have plenty of uh, different perspectives on inequality and how we understand it. So I'm going to kick off with the first question, which I said to Chris is rather like a PhD viva. How did you get to write this book? <laughs> what, what brought you here? Why did you get to do it? Well, um, first off, I just want to say thanks to you, thanks to, to the fellow panelists, and for all of you guys for coming out for the 
discussion tonight. I hope it can be a discussion. We're going to talk up here and discuss amongst ourselves, and then I'm looking forward to opening it up to, uh, to, to be as participatory as possible. This is the capstone event for me of a whirlwind two days in, in London, and it means a lot to me to see so many different faces, so many faces um, uh, coming out tonight to, to have the discussion, so thank you. Uh, so, so to answer the question, why did I write the book, which is a way of, of sort of into the, the issue in the first place, um, I wanted to tell my own story of uh, where I came from, how Facebook began, the fortune that I came into, the responsibility I feel, and also the work that I do today around the guaranteed income. So for those of you who have not yet read the book, it's really part memoir and part policy. It's, it's both. It's, um, and I wanted it to be that way. My story starts in a little town in North Carolina, Hickory, North Carolina. It's probably not a place that many of you can find on, oh, you could find it on a map, but you might not know about it before, uh, before tonight. It's a, it, it's a small manufa furniture manufacturing town at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina. And uh, I grew up solidly middle class. My dad was a traveling paper salesman, the middle guy between the big industrial paper manufacturers and the printers. And my mom was a public school teacher. She taught high school math, algebra, and geometry. And I was an only child. They worked hard. We had a very middle class upbringing. Then I got a big scholarship to go to a fancy boarding school called Phillips Academy. And uh, from there, I got another scholarship to go to Harvard. And while at Harvard, my freshman year, I became really acquaintances, not even friends, but initially just acquaintances with Mark Zuckerberg. And we decided to room together along with some other folks. And then sophomore year, in February of 2004, we started Facebook. And the rocket ship, as I like to say, took off. And much of that story is, is well chronicled. Um, although, by the way, I'm happy to talk to Facebook and all the news around Facebook that's, that's in the news today, because it does overlap with many of these same themes. But the reason I tell all that story in the book and the reason I tell it tonight is because my life took a total U-turn. I went from being um, a, uh, a middle-class, working-class kid to, as I say on the cover of the book, making nearly half a, mil a billion dollars in three years. And I don't think there's anything that you can call that besides a lucky break. We should call it what it is. However, I also feel that my story is not as unique as you may think it is. For a little while after that, I thought, oh, I'm just sort of the lucky roommate of Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's just me. And in reality, uh, my story is repeated every single day in the United States, here in the UK, and in much of the developed world. Because what we're experiencing, what we've built actively as a society and uh, uh, politically is an economy that provides massive rewards, lottery-like returns for the 1% and the 0.1% while everybody else struggles to make ends meet. There are 40 million people in poverty in the United States today. When Martin Luther King preached about the guaranteed income 50 years ago, there were 40 million people in poverty in the United States. And in that intervening period, we know a lot more about how we can address not just poverty, but economic mobility. And one of the strongest, I would argue the strongest tool to combating income inequality is perhaps counterintuitive, but it is cash. 
It's providing people with money, no strings attached. There is a very robust evidence base that makes the case that when you provide people with money, more often than not, they spend it smartly. They spend it on themselves, on their families, and they're, they're as involved, if not as, it, they're, more, they're more involved in the labor force. They work more, uh, just as much as before, if not more, and the health outcomes improve. Educational outcomes improve. And economic mobility is, is supported. So in my work today, I make the case for a guaranteed income for working people. So by that, it's, it's, it's in, in many ways a, um, a cousin of the UBI idea. Usually UBI is talked about in the context of growing automation and artificial intelligence. All the jobs are going to go away. A lot of people, particularly out in Silicon Valley, say, so thus we need a universal basic income where everybody gets about $1,000 or 700 pounds a month. My view is maybe, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about uh, the idea that jobs are, are disappearing wholesale, but what I know is that jobs are coming apart. All the jobs that we're creating in the United States and, and, and elsewhere are part-time, contract, temporary, seasonal, the kinds of gig economy jobs that are symbolized by the, by the Uber drivers that are out there. And what we need, not only to combat the income inequality that's growing, but also the income instability that comes with the gig economy is a consistent cash payment, a kind of foundation of, I call, of about $6,000 a year per person that no one can fall below. So the idea is not that this is enough money for anybody to survive on on its own. $6,000 or 4,000 pounds is not, isn't enough. It's meant to be designed as a supplement to other benefits, to other wages from work and a kind of down payment on, on uh, the universal basic income if in fact all of the, the predictions of the technologists uh, actually come to pass. One other, one other comment, and then um, we can engage in a little bit more dialogue. I, I think of this often as a, as a practical, efficient way to combat poverty and uh, provide opportunity for the middle class. But I also think that at the end of the day, this is a moral question. We live in the richest countries at the richest moments in history. And yet, economic mobility is stagnant, if not falling, and tens of millions of people in my country continue to live in poverty, and too many here do as well. And we know how to fix it. We can afford it. And the question is whether or not we can develop the political will to be the generation that says poverty is no more and economic opportunity is, is the, the, uh, uh, the, the most important challenge of our time and what we want to provide. So as much as we can and I think should talk and hopefully will talk tonight about the empirical evidence about cash and what people do and the hundreds of studies, at the end of the day, I think it's, uh, it's really about what we owe one another, and that is, a, a, I think, a moral and an ethical obligation to make sure that everyone is, uh, is taken care of. Yeah, a moral commitment to inequality. Now, you, you proposed that it would be a sovereign uh, wealth tax that would 
produce the money to pay the actual supplement for incomes. Um, would that be enough? Because the, I know you know this, uh, the tax system in the US is probably one of the most disgusting tax systems in the world in terms of the privileges <laughs> that it gives. You know this, you've talked yeah. about this, in terms of the privileges that it gives to the very rich. You know, uh, uh, it's astonishing. I think it was Warren Buffett who said that he actually pays less in tax than his PA. Um, th th there are so many tax breaks, corporate tax breaks. How would you adjust that in order to pay um, a basic form of uh, guaranteed income. Well, l let me let me address specifically what I talk about in the U.S. context because that's mostly what the the chat the couple chapters towards the end of the book um, prescribe. But then I want to zoom out and talk about some of the other ideas that um, that a lot of people here are talking about because I think that they're very promising and they're, frankly they're promising for the U.S. as as well. So in the book, I make the case that we should um, ad uh, administer the benefit through our tax code by providing a monthly tax credit of $500 a month to each person. It's part of what we call the earned income tax credit. And I th say that we should pay for it by doing two big things. The first is getting rid of the most egregious loopholes, like the one you just mentioned. I mean, the Warren Buffett does have a lower tax rate than his executive assistant. I mean, my tax rate, because, because in the United States we tax capital gains and investment income, significantly lower than ordinary income, than income derived from, from labor, it means that my tax rate is lower than many working people's, which, which makes no sense. And yet it's going lower. You know, we, the, the Trump tax bill lowers, uh, lowers uh, the rates for the 1% and, and corporations, even though trickle-down economics, I would argue, has been debunked by actual experience over the past 40 years. So closing that loophole and then raising rates on um, uh, income above $250,000 back up to where they've historically been at 50% in the U.S. Right now they're about 35, 36%. That's just income above 250. <clears throat> so if you're making an additional, if you're making $300,000, you're going to pay an extra seven grand in uh, in additional tax to fund it. If you're making $10 million. A year, then you're going to pay well over a million dollars to fund the kind of benefit. So that's specifically how I make the case for paying for it in the U.S. Now there are a lot of other ways to do this. So as much as I think that that is an important and and the most promising way, it's not the only. A lot of people here, in particular, are talking about the creation of um, a sovereign wealth fund that could distribute uh, the, the returns as a kind of dividend. And so the, the model for this is actually the model that we have in the state of Alaska. Up in Alaska about 40 years ago, when an oil boom was happening, they, the government, led by a, a Republican governor, uh, had the foresight to put a small tax on all of the uh, the, the proceeds, the revenue from the oil companies, and then to take that and put it into a savings account. And they, d they decided that every year, 2.5% of the returns of, of that savings account would be distributed to every Alaskan as a dividend, each person. So the, 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 the narrative behind that is that we all, we as Alaskans, if you will, all own the, the land. It is our right as an Alaskan to, to benefit. If we decide that we want to let oil companies come in and, and uh, profit from it, 
then you know that can bring jobs and economic growth. But we also need to make sure that every Alaskan uh, uh, gets a piece of that, that opportunity. So this model now means that every Alaskan gets a check of 1500 bucks every fall, which if you're thinking about, just to put it in context, if you have a family of four, two, two adults, two kids, that's $6,000. The median income in the United States is around $60,000. So imagine if you got a check every October for 10% of what you make now. That would be enough money to help you make ends meet, but certainly not enough money to accomplish all of your, all of your needs or mean you can drop out of the, the workforce. And we know a lot about how that works and why it works. So here in the UK, there have been two um, uh, reports, one by IPPR and the other by um, uh, the RSA, that have both made uh, 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 very technical and very specific recommendations for how could have a guaranteed income or, or, a, uh, or some derivative of that in the UK. In some cases, it's for a short period of a couple years. In the case of the IPPR report, they call for um, a kind of uh, sovereign wealth fund that would give every Briton, when they turn 25, 10,000 pounds once as a kind of down payment to enable the person to either pay, to, to, to do with it whatever, whatever they like. So anyway, I can talk all day about the different ways to pay for it and the different ways to structure it. In the book, I do make the case in the US context that the best way is to raise the rates on, on, on income. But there are many other ways um, to do this. Uh, the um, one that we, we haven't talked about yet, but we, it, we can if it's of interest, is to also do something um, like what they've done in Alaska with oil but nationwide um, with data. There are a lot of people who think of data as the natural resource of the 21st century. I mean, this is the data that, we, that creates the trillions of dollars of economic, uh, of economic uh, uh, profits that Facebook and others um, um, very much take advantage of. I mean, these companies are worth trillions of dollars, and um, we as users get to use the platforms and they're still free, but um, I think that there's a real argument to be, to, to be made for something like a, a, a tech dividend, if you will. So um, I know some other folks up here have thoughts about that, so hopefully we can get into some dialogue on that, yeah, on that as well. Yeah, I think we've got two people here who are, going, who are very keen on, on data completely, and then I was thinking about tax. So it's like, um, who would like to go in first with a question? I'd like to explore a little bit, because I think it's really interesting um, and first of all, I'd like to really welcome the intervention, Chris, because I do think mm. it's a really, it's fantastic to be sitting here talking about the possibilities for some forms of progressive taxation. Mm. Yeah. You know, how long has it taken us to get to this point where we can actually sit mm. and have a proper discussion as if it might actually happen? Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I just think that yeah. is an incredible um, place to be. Even five years ago, that mm. would have been very difficult. Mm. I also really welcomed in the book the way in which you've shifted the narrative from being about um, a poor who are lazy and feckless, mm. essentially, into people who actually know what they're doing with their own money and their yes. own time, and, and we should um, endow them with that, you know, that ability. We should enable that, them to have that. Um, the possibility, I think you say, to create their own histories, although I may argue that this may not be the way to do it, but, <laughs> but still, that's, I think it's great to be having those conversations. You, I picked out when I was reading it the three areas that you've already touched on. So it was insecure employment, inequality, 
and stagnant pay. Maybe you haven't just mentioned that, but it was. And, and for me, I'm struggling with the idea that this guaranteed income of $500 a month, if you are in work, and maybe we should, you should talk a bit more actually about your definition of work, because that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But the, um, how that will deal with those problems. So it sounds great. It sounds like, yeah, yippee. We're all going to get this additional money if you're um, below a certain income rate um, and in work. But actually, maybe we should think a bit harder about what the potential downsides to that could be. So would it provide a cushion for insecure employment, the gig, gig economy, moving between jobs, having to have zero-hour contracts, all of those things which are massively on the increase in the UK, I don't know whether you have it in the US, but we've now got this um, move to what are called short hours contracts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to avoid the bad publicity of zero hour contracts, yes. you give somebody a, a short hours contracts, which means that you know if you work a 40 hour week, within nine weeks you've lost your right to um, employment and payment. So it's a kind of, you know, all of these things are stacking up, as you say, to create this incredibly insecure short term employment. My anxiety with something like a guaranteed income is that you effectively subsidize that flexible working pattern. So what you do is you kind of, you know, you're allowing work employers to say, it's all right, they've got this little cushion here, it's fine, we can, we, we can do all of this, and, and it won't really, you know, it, it, it's, it almost justifies it for them. And, and you take away in that process, or you certainly don't in enhance any bargaining rights or negotiating rights for those workers themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is, this is one of the most important questions to get right, because what we don't want to do with this, uh, with a guaranteed income, is, um, is uh, subsidize private employers uh, or, I mean, it's not just employ the employment relationship. Another concern is with, you know, housing policy. If, if, if um, you know, uh, uh, if, there, if there isn't the opportunity for people to actually buy, if capital remains in the hands of the landowners, then this will just increase, increase rents. And so there, there are, these are some of, of the most urgent questions, I think, to ask. I think a few things. I think a guaranteed income should be implemented alongside many other structural economic reforms, including higher wages in the United States. Our minimum wage, our national minimum wage, remains embarrassingly low. It's seven seventy-five uh, an hour. Um, uh, uh, I'd like to see that much higher. I think it should be in also implemented in conjunction with higher income tax rates, and also uh, a, a different kind of approach to the concentration of power. I mean, we're seeing fewer new company, new, new, the rates of entrepreneurship in the U.S. are, are at near record lows, and power is increasingly concentrated in the hands of a, of a smaller and smaller set of major, of major actors. So I do not think that a guaranteed income is, or UBI for that matter, is a silver bullet. And in fact, I think that anybody who treats it as that, you know, isn't thinking about all of these these kinds of structural problems. However, I also think that the moment that we're in now is one where we have to throw into stark relief the power that we do have to address 
inequality and the evidence that uh, cash can and does address that very effectively. So recognizing, recognizing the moment that we're in, I think we need to say, well, let's create a guaranteed income. Let's ensure that employers are paying fair and living, living wages. And let's make sure that the, the markets are actually working for us as citizens and, and uh, participants in them rather than just for the, the corporate kinds of um, elites. So my, my, my um, uh, view on it is that these reforms have to happen in tandem. But the reason that I talk about the guaranteed income is because I, I think of all of these, it is the least talked about. It is the least um, looked at because, because uh, cash is, it, it asks these bigger fundamental questions really about trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, that becomes the proxy for the debate. Is cash really the best way to enable someone to be the masters of their, of, to, to enable people to be the masters of their own destinies? And um, in, in, my, in, in my view, it is, not, it is not everything, but I think that we live in a time where half of the population in America can't find $400 in the case of an emergency. I think the stats are similar here, and we often overlook the power of cash when we rush to the other systemic kinds of solutions, which of course need, need support and need further exploration. But let's just, sometimes the best solution can be, or sometimes the best solution is the simplest. Okay, so Cam, would you like to? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I did a fair bit of reporting around welfare during austerity and how we had a huge focus shift after the financial crisis to our welfare system. Uh, but the reality of all these, we had loads of welfare policies happening, um, but all of them seemed to not be about giving any resources, actually committing any resources to people, and it was actually creating more hoops for people to jump through. So in that sense, I think the idea of the cash transfer and that just giving away resources is an important thing. However, we have to pay attention to some other people who are jumping on this bandwagon. For example, the American Enterprise Institute has recently said that the new social bargain should be uh, basic income and total deregulation. Um, you know, people will think that this might be a vehicle through which we can run down some public services. How do we protect the value and ensure that that's not decreased at the point at which we, you know, pass that over? Well, I think in the U.S. context, I make the case in the book that uh, uh, guaranteed income should be supplemental to the um, to the safety net that we have. I mean, the safety net in the U.S. is so tattered, is so weak, is so spotty that I um, do not believe that we we should cash any of it in in order to pay for this. In fact, I think that's a key point because the way that I talk about the, the guaranteed income, it is for people who um, uh, who are you know working but don't have that kind of stability in the background. And the safety net is there to help the disabled and to help the elderly. And that that needs to be, it doesn't make any sense to cash cash the latter end to pay for something else. It would be this weird kind of, it would be a regressive kind of cashing in benefits for the poor in order to pay uh, for people who, um, who, uh, who do have more income. So I, I think it's important to draw lines about um, what we need and uh, how, to, how to 
um, how to enact it, and, and particularly in the U.S., I, I, I think that it's in, very important not to, to have this kind of um, cash-in kind of conversation. I do think, though, and um, this was brought up earlier, that if we're going to have a guaranteed income that is geared for, uh, for working people, then we, we also need to expand the definition of work that the state uses. And right now, that's mostly uh, uh, people who participate in the formal workforce. It certainly does not in the US include child care, elder care, students, or people involved in um, education, all of which, you know, colloquially, when we talk about work, I think most people would agree those people are working. They're doing something for, for themselves or for their families that is of a social good. It's just not part of the system of exchange. And so as a, as a result, a lot of the time, we tell people, well, you got to go work at a Burger King or Pret-a-Manger to, you know, actually get many of the benefits that the, the state has um, said that working people deserve. Instead, I think what we should do is expand the definition of work to include a lot of that informal activity. Now, some people on the right have said to me, well, isn't that just going to include everybody? And I say back, yeah, pretty much. Because the idea, the mythology of the welfare queen, which is the pervasive one in the, in the United States, um, is, is just that. It's, it's a myth. I mean, labor force participation rates, particularly amongst um, mm -hmm. that particular group, African-American women, are higher than they are for white men in the United States. This idea that there's so many people out there that they're just hanging out and like, I don't know what, smoking or drinking or they're living on the dole just waiting to take your tax dollars. That does not line up with my experience and how I grew up. That's not the, the, the people that um, I talk to and I don't think that that, I know that that's not what the empirical evidence shows that when you provide people uh, money, it doesn't go to those kinds of, of benefits and, and people, uh, people keep working because work is an important way that we shape our identities and gives us purpose. Work, again, in the broadest sense of, um, of the term. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's a key piece to, to, to understand when we talk Why about all these issues. Why don't you then just call it a universal basic income, Chris, with a cut-off well, at a certain income level? I don't think Bill Gates should get it. You know, the idea with the universal... No, but with a cut-off at an income level. No, well, that's the idea with the universal basic yeah. income, is that, 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 that it's universal. And um, I, I think there are two values that, that at least I, 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 I think it... Um, shouldn't encapsulate. One is simplicity, so people can actually understand how much they're getting, when they're getting, and what with what regularity. And then secondly is that the people who need it the most are the folks who get it. So in, in the book, I make the case for median wages, roughly about $50,000, a little bit short of that, the bottom two quintiles, on down, getting the $500 um, a month with, with some regularity. Now, Experts in social policy would say, "Well, you should do you should you know do the curve so that people who are, who make less get more, and then there's a you know a careful phase out." And I uh, obviously we need to think through the the cliff and exactly how extreme it should be. But I think that the the challenge right now with many of these benefits in the U.S., specifically the Earned Income Tax Credit, is that a lot of tens of millions of people get it. They just they don't know. They don't even know what it is. They don't know what it's called. They don't know how much money they're going to get each year. They don't know when they get it. They don't know 
what it's derived from. And so without, without that predictability, you lose a lot of the upside of providing, providing a stability. So I do think it should be, in, in my world, in the US, we have this insane oxymoron of targeted universality, which is, <laughs> you know, every, which means everybody in a certain group um, uh, gets it, and that is, uh, that, yeah, and strategic, that would be, yeah, although even there. Um, and so that, that's, that's the approach I favor, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have different perspectives, and um, I, I don't think there's only one, one way to do I think my anxiety, again, with that is not, um, yes, I, of course, I don't want to pay Bill Gates this additional money, but it's the, it's also that you are defined, that by saying work, even if you're including, and in the book you make a specific case mm. for, carers and students, you're also excluding by somebody who doesn't work. In, and you're saying, oh, it will be almost everyone, but actually by definition, by saying it's people who work, you have to then define who it is who works. Now, the narrative around working will make that quite difficult, I think. Um, although, uh, and also it will exclude the very poorest, and that seems to me perverse. Well, I don't think it, I mean, the very poorest are some of the hardest working people in society, so it shouldn't exclude them. For people who are, who in the United States context, who are disabled or who can't work, that is <clears throat> what the social safety net is for. A big reason that I think that it's important to inscribe this in the, in the conversation about work is because that's what um, Americans poor and middle class alike want. You know, I'm out there every month talking to people in places like Youngstown, Ohio, or Jackson, Mississippi, where I was a few weeks ago, and I have yet to hear a single person saying, I want a handout. I want money for free. Give me some of that universal basic income. People instead say, what? I'm getting money from the state for what? For, well, for being alive as a, as a kind of, well, how long is that? Who's paying for that? When are they going to take it away? There's just this deep and profound confusion. And I think, uh, in my experience, it's because it, there, there isn't a kind of symbiosis. Well, if you're giving me something and I'm not doing anything for it, then why is that reliable? You can take that away from me at any point. Whereas if you say, no, it's, it's part of our social contract or social bargain that if you, if, if you are doing something for your family or your community, you shouldn't live in poverty. And it just so happens the way that the economy is, is increasingly being structured, work is much less predictable, much more piecemeal, much more oriented around short-term gigs, and we need a kind of income floor that stabilizes, you, that stabilizes your financial life. And then, the, and then people, it's, 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 it's sensical. Without it, when, when you say, well, it's, it's, just, it's just money that grows off trees, people are naturally the people say, what? That's not the way it works. That's not the way, that's not the way the um, money works. And what's more, I don't want that. You Instead, I want to work and I want to have that be recognized and, and treated as, the, as, as valuable as it is. I mean, I can recognize that uh, people might have that kind of response, but I think that also comes from this managerial way that we have of uh, having to incentivize or, or manage the low income into being better. Um, and unearned income is would only be a new phenomenon for, for working people because it exists in many, many ways for people who are middle class and who are much richer. This country is driven by house price rises, which are unearned income. So that whole kind of coming as well around to the idea that unearned income is, is only not an option for the lowest um, income people because rich people can have many different ways of making money with very little effort or without working five hours a day. So I think that whole concept as well 
um, could do with being broken down that, yeah, you actually do deserve things for just being alive. <laughs> can, I, can I come in as well on the care thing? Because I've been absolutely fascinated. We've got a debate on progressive tax. Fantastic. We've got the old feminist debate, Wages for Housework, 1973, Selma James coming into a public forum made by a billionaire. I mean, this is wonderful. Well, that, I said half. <laughs> in, in the half, billionaire. <laughs> half a billionaire. Point taken. Half a billionaire. Point hey, taken. What's, what, what's the noughts? Multi-million. Um, but, still, but still, we're having these debates. And I think, well, well I think really good we're having them. But then there's all the problems that a, a lot of us got locked into in terms of how do we value care. Um, because if you say care is only worth... $500 a month, because it wouldn't be on top of any other income. It would be literally valuing it at $500 a month. That locks it into a very low-paid occupation. So we've got to really rethink how do we understand the occupations of care and what does care work actually mean. So I really, really welcome the fact it's on the agenda, but I feel I've, I've been through a lot of these debates before and they haven't been fully... Um, addressed ever no. because the whole system is based upon women's in particular women's unpaid labor and without women's unpaid labor the whole of capital couldn't keep reproducing itself it is the basis of social and um, biological reproduction so for me it's great to be having these debates but i really want to know i'm less interested in how the 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 numbers work for UBI, because we can all work those out and we can all move them around. But for me, the, the key issue is how do we understand those forms of, of work that aren't classified as work, and do we lock them into a particular low-income, stuck-forever-in-this-kind of uh, almost, not always gendered parenthood, but, you know, almost defined gendered basis? Well, I, think, I, I, I mean, I, I think it taps into big questions of theories of change. I mean, do you recognize it and name it and begin to provide a kind of income supplement for it today? Or, um, you know, recognizing that $500 a month is not, you know, a sufficient payment for, for, for that work? Or do you, I guess the, the well, I'm curious what the, 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 the alternative approach would be to, I guess, a more generous yeah, much more, much, much more, generous more generous to actually value it as a proper job. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, that's why it becomes a really, really moral debate, because it's about when does caring work yeah. for the elderly and for children become proper? Well, it's not that it's, I... You know, absolutely. I mean, I think we have to start... I think we have to start somewhere, and that becomes yeah, the yeah, terrain yeah, of the yeah, debate yeah, is, yeah. you know, where, yeah. where do you start? And um, one of the most fun things about uh, talking about these issues in the United States these days is every day I talk to somebody who thinks I'm absolutely crazy because this is not nearly big enough. Mm -hmm. And then in, <laughs> I'll do that in the morning, let's say. And then in the afternoon, I talk to somebody else who's absolutely crazy. You want to spend how much? $300 billion? And some audiences, when I talk about this stuff, it, it elicits gasps of, <laughs> of, of this guy is, is nuts. He's, this, this idea is, is far too bold. So uh, listen, my, my view is we have to find some, some place in the middle that's workable to to begin that is still audacious and um, and, and meaningful, but is uh, is possible. One other thing on the on the spokesperson, I, I I am very clear that in the long term, I think the people who should be the spokespeople for for this issue are uh, the kinds of people who I talk to 
who are struggling to make ends meet. And, and particularly some of the, the, the civil leaders, social society leaders, and political leaders who come out of those communities. So one of the things that we, that, um, we are doing at the Economic Security Project, the group that I co-run, is funding a, a demonstration of the idea of a guaranteed income. And we are doing that uh, in, uh, in support of, of uh, the mayor of Stockton, California, who's this 27-year-old African-American mayor, Mayor Michael Tubbs is his name. He's the youngest mayor of any major city in the United States. Stockton you might not have heard of, but 300,000 people live there. It was a city that declared bankruptcy just before Detroit, and he is, he is piloting a program that provides a guaranteed income for Stocktonians. So in the long term, I think he, and already, I mean, he, the, he can speak to this issue as a person who not only has grown up in poverty himself, but now also has the mantle of political responsibility in a way that, that, um, that few other people can, hopefully, next time he's over here, he can, he can come and um, be on a stage like this one. So um, I think amplifying uh, those, those voices is one of the key reasons that we, we, we at the Economic Security Project w uh, work on this issue, and that's, a, that's a, something that's really important yeah, and critical yeah. to that's me personally. You wanted to say yeah, I just want to and go then we'll open back to the idea yeah. of um, structural problems <laughs> that you started with, because it was, it's really great that you said um, this can't happen on its own. It won't have any. It won't have the desired effect if it, if you just get a guaranteed income without having a really good benefit system, without having you know, um, let's say, better um, employment law and regulation, taxation, let's say, which is you know all of those things which you you know you would agree with. I would agree with, and and yet you start with something that doesn't address those things. So my anxi real anxiety is politically, in the context we are at in now, so we're just about to come out of Europe and probably lose enormous amounts of employment rights and regulation law. <coughs> we're probably about to suffer massive, um, actually either stagnant wages or decreases in wages, actually. So it's, you know, will that sort of intervention really address those problems or will it allow a political response coming back to what cam was saying which says you've been given this money mm. you should be fine get on and deal with it so it won't address that massive shift that we need which is the shift away from capital and into the commons actually you know it's that kind of shift which we know in automation we can argue i agree with you that it won't be the 40 percent loss of jobs it'll be somewhere between the nine and 40 percent what we do know for sure is the money that is made from that increase in productivity through automation will go into the capital owners mm -hmm. it won't go to the workers workers pay will decrease <coughs> as a consequence unless we address that structural issue whereby capital so you know it, it's all about the profit game for those capital owners usually on a you know global basis so they're these massive global corporations wouldn't a better starting place be to say come back to one of your earlier points and say actually we need to really regulate what goes on with global capital and massively tax what they do in residence taxations and where they do it I think we must do both. I mean, I think if, if um, my publisher encouraged me to write a short book of uh, 40,000 <laughs> words. I think you need to do at least um, three more, Chris. <laughs> I mean, listen, I think, I mean, I am not an economist by training, um, but I, I, um, I, I mean, everything you just said, I, I would agree with. And I think that we need more 
people making, making the case. My, my goal specifically with the book and working on this issue is to make a sort of wonky idea a little bit more accessible, yeah. to, to make it, to open it up to a broader conversation, not to pretend like all of a sudden I'm, you know, I've got a PhD or two in the, in, in the field. It's mm -hmm. to support people who do. I mean, and that is what a lot of the grant making that we do at Economic Security Project is to commission these kinds of reports. It sounds like maybe we should talk more about the structural, <laughs> the structural ways that these things need to, need to go hand in hand. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah. Okay, Cam, so another question, then I'll open it out to the audience. It's all right. Um, yeah, I guess it's still kind of leading on from that because it's, uh, as well as it being structural, so recently people have probably seen the report that said the 1% will own two-thirds of the world's wealth by 2030. That's gone up from 50% in a few short years. This thing is constantly moving in the other direction, um, and it's kind of kept up by the common sense of our economic policies and through the social norms about whose interests our society works in. So what can we do about because this is also a moral question for powerful people in society, right? Globalization is not, uh, or automation, and us being on the bad side of it is not just something that happens, it happens with the will of people who are very, very powerful. So how do we go to those points in society, you know, as someone who might be a little bit connected there? <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do, Chris? Yeah, what can I mean, what motivates them? How do we, like, what, what, what do you think could break through to that kind of conversation? Because these people feel so far away from us. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I, I think we have to make the moral and practical case at the same time. So the moral case is, at the end of the day, what motivates me and is why I work on the issue. There is a very strong practical case for uh, a, a guaranteed income, and that's specifically that if you spur consumer spending, if you actually ensure that people have money to spend, given that consumer spending is the, the, the biggest driver of our economic uh, economy, then you can see meaningful economic growth. Now, we are having a, a very robust debate in the United States about which model is right. Is it the kind of Keynesian model? Is it the neoliberal model? I think the neoliberal one is, is, is truly coming apart, which would be a really interesting thing to hear how other people in this room feel about it. Um, but I, I think that the case that we have to make, the case that hopefully is ascendant, is that if, um, if we don't do something about the, ine the inequality that exists, a guaranteed income in conjunction with, with other kinds of policies, then, um, then uh, it's going to be hard for people, for those same people, to, to keep the kind of economic growth that they've enjoyed in recent years. So it's a, it's a more cynical kind of practical argument, but it is the argument that economic growth is, is buoyed by when people have, um, have the cash to spend. We have a study in the U.S. that was done by the Roosevelt Institute, which um, looked at, they, they ran an economic model with the Levy, in, in partnership with the Levy Institute and several economists to figure out what would be the impact on GDP if you gave every American $500 and financed through progressive taxation, a blend of progressive ta taxation and, um, and debt. And there they found that GDP in the most, in the most optimistic model, but in, in, um, in one of the ones that's very much feasible, would be, boost, would be boosted by 7% over the next eight years. Which in a time when we're struggling to, 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 to you know, um, when 2% GDP is, you know, great, then, I mean, that is a, an incredibly powerful tool that um, I think would be good for, good for everyone. Now, I don't tend to make that argument off the bat because I'm just naturally suspicious of the when, when it'll be good for everyone because 
there is a question of power here. And at the end of the day, I do think that the wealthiest need to pay their share, and that requires um, uh, sacrifice. And that's not a word that a lot of people want to, want to, want to hear, but I think it's an important one. I, I do think it's a sacrifice to make sure our countries, our societies, our democracies work better over the long term. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I, I think that that's what's required. It's a moral argument in, in many respects. So, okay, I'm going to open it out. People have already got their hands up over oh here. God. Oh, good Lord, how am I going to do this? Um, Take a few <laughs> Yes, uh, hands up over here. <laughs> and over there in the green. Oh, yeah. Thank uh, thanks very much. Um, Natalie mentioned the global aspect of both capital and increasingly labor, and I just wondered whether the, what the thing, I'm afraid I haven't read your book, but what the thinking is around both the consequences for a very globalized, uh, in, uh, for inequality which is global, uh, or whether also there's been thinking about these approaches outside of the developed economies. Well, I, I, I began work on this from an international context, um, specifically international development. I was, um, after uh, Facebook went public, my husband and I made a commitment to give away um, the vast majority of our wealth in our lifetime, and we began a journey of figuring out, okay, what's the most effective way to do that? I have a whole chapter in the, in the book about it for people who are interested in it, and, and I started thinking about the poorest of the poor, what's the most effective way to help them, and went a, a somewhat circuitous route, but ended up really coming to, uh, to believe that cash, dollar for dollar, is the most effective thing that, that you can spend on to help people. And again, not the only thing. You still need hospitals and you still need schools, but we've developed an entire system of, of, of development with all kinds of very well-paid people from countries like mine and, uh, and yours, and a lot of the money doesn't get to the people who really need it. So I became... Um, I became, I, I was exposed to a lot of the evidence around cash through that, through that vehicle. So um, I, I don't have a great answer, though, to the question of, of can we create a guaranteed income of sorts on a, on a supranational scale, on, a, on, a, on an international scale. I think for as long as economies and, um, are still run by uh, nation states or economic policies, I guess, to be more precise, are still run by it. I think that that's the level that we have to we have to begin at. But I feel like other people up here, maybe in the room, might have um, might might have better ideas than I. Okay, there's how are we going to get through to the middle? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ted, maybe we'll what we oh, sorry, maybe we'll try and take three at a time. That's the quickest way to to, to do it. Um, okay, so if we can start over here, one, two, three, is that okay? This is like conducting an orchestra. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Um, I think uh, a lot of great points have been made on the interconnectedness of different social security systems and the welfare state in general. I think it's not just that uh, a universal basic income or a guaranteed income would be inadequate without them. It would be quickly obsolete because it's a, it's a fundamentally inflationary measure, which is absolutely fine. But as if it's not indexed with that inflation, uh, and if there aren't 
measures that are tackling inequality in itself, and not just inequality of income, but inequality of wealth, it will become quickly obsolete and it will become like the um, minimal minimum wage where it's continuously pushed down and stagnates. So how do you see that political will being mustered to, as you say, not just um, not just make a sacrifice uh, from from those from those who are who have higher wealth, but also sacrifice over generations the fact that they will have they will have much less power um, as that goes. Great. Do you want to pass the microphone to your side and then back behind you after that? Uh, hi. Um, this question, I think, was actually raised but not, um, not actually addressed, which is if it's tied to work and admittedly within a wider definition of work, how does it benefit the poorest of the poor? How does it benefit homeless people? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting because Chris, you started kind of talking about your education and sort of how you kind of got where you were and how it was key, sort of what school you went to and who you met. And I kind of think if we look at, you know, the society's powerful institutions like finance, politics, people from low-income families are basically sort of absent and it kind of, they don't get in at the first hurdle, I suppose. So how does this solution sort of tackle that? Great, so we'll take those three and that's probably more, even more acute in the US than it is in the UK, but that's been massively increasing in terms of access to education. And can I bring you two in as well if you want to answer the question? So Chris, will you have a, a, a Sure, a I'll have first go, first? yeah, I'll have first go at it. Um, on the inflationary point, um, I, I, I definitely think that it should be indexed to inflation. And um, in addition to that, if we're talking about some of the more technical elements, I think um, particularly in the United States, the amount of the benefit should be regionally adjusted because $500 in Alabama versus $500 in San Francisco, I mean, the cost of living is very, very different in those kinds of um, places. I quibble with the idea that the guaranteed income or universal basic income um, itself would create inflation. I think most, you know, most of the, the studies and the economists who have chimed in on this is if you did it through quantitative easing, if you were increasing the money supply, then uh, perhaps, but um, if you're if you're doing it through redistribution through taxation, then uh, the inflation the inflation concerns are pretty muted. There have been some studies. The most recent one was in um, uh, Mexico Mexico City, or um, that looked specifically at inflationary effects. And there have been a couple others too. And um, they've shown um, uh, very little. In fact, it's not even been statistically significant. So, um, and and the most of the folks I talk to when inflation comes up as a concern, um, it tends to be well of all the things to worry about. You know, we've we've been worrying about stagflation, deflation for a very long time now. That you know we could use a little bit more um, uh, inflation, uh, but I still think it uh, the benefit needs to be indexed to it. Um, I think we might, on the, on the second question, I think um, the question is, is whether or not work and jobs are going away altogether. And that is where I, I, I don't see evidence that they are. I mean, unemployment rates in the United States are near record lows. Now, that does not mean that, that there isn't a, an incredible job dislocation happening. And lots of people who, who want to work, who can't find work because they don't have the skills, they're not in the right place, et cetera. But in terms of overall, the, the, my, my 
some of my peers in Silicon Valley who make the case that that um, uh, that that jobs are over. I have yet to see see the evidence that that um, that provides that. I do think that having a guaranteed income helps people be able to take advantage of the educational <clears throat> opportunities or be able to move to places where there are jobs in um, in a way that they can't now. I mean, there was one woman. Actually, this speaks to the question about education. Two, there was a, a woman that I met in Ohio last summer who um, who had a couple kids and who was working in retail. And she had one of these very flexible hours, some weeks 20 hours, some weeks less, some weeks more. Um, and she, uh, uh, she I, I asked her the question, why don't you just go back to school, get a better job? Because she, she was, I mean, a very smart, curious, motivated kind of person. and. Um, this is, <clears throat> again, in the United States context, but she was like, I'd love to. Well, let's talk about how I'm going to be able to do that. The closest college for, with those retraining is 45 minutes away. The tuition costs $8,000 a year. With some financial aid, I can get, I can get it down to $1,000. I've got to figure out the job that I'm working at. I've, somehow I've got to figure out how to go to classes every Tuesday and Thursday at 6 p.m., and somehow I'm supposed to be able to tell my employer, I don't you know if it was a Starbucks or whatever, but like, oh, well, I need off every Tuesday and Thursday at 6 p.m., which sounds lovely, but is uh, uh, next to impossible for people <clears throat> who don't have, that, who don't have that, that leverage. But even if she were able to do all of that, she also has two kids. And the cost of childcare and the lost hours at work mean that the, the education, the education is, could very well be, I don't know, could very well be a very high quality education, could be a great jobs training program, but because there's no liquidity in the system, because there's no ability for her to be able to go and participate in it in the first place, she can't take advantage of the educational opportunities that um, are out there. Now that's a sort of a community college, vocational, technical, level and doesn't, I, I think your question on the education stuff was more about um, uh, the four-year higher education um, context, but, but my point is that, that we have poured, particularly in the United States, in the past several decades, so much money into higher education. I mean, the, the amount that we spend on higher education is just up and to the right, and yet economic mobility, flat. And it's not to say that we shouldn't invest in education. We should. However, the idea that, oh, well, the classic sort of liberal idea, if you will, that, oh, well, if, if we can just educate people for jobs of the future, then um, everything's going to be okay. That has just not yet proven to be true. And I think it's time that we, we, when we think about further investments, we take a different tack. Now, we've got the homeless issue again. What happens to the people who are really poor? Do, 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 do you want to take any? I've got so much I want to say, but I think we'll keep collecting. I'll, I'll remember that one. We'll keep collecting. One of you is going first it, next time. I'll yeah. keep coming up. So it was over. Sorry, it was over here at the back. Definitely blue shirt. Had your hand up right at the start, and then in front of you, <laughs> and then um, there was somebody over here. In that, there was a triangle over here. If we're going for three questions, okay, we'll pass it down to you then next, and then I'll go up on the balcony after that. Okay, blue shirt. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, hello. Uh, thank you, Chris. And um, uh, like I have a, a question to you, Chris, and to you, Natalie, maybe a little bit. Uh, so, question is: um, it's a little bit description uh, of what we may have now. Cash is the king. Work is a privilege, and this privilege is is getting down, and it will be less accessible for 
majority of the people, but the people want to work. They want to contribute and they want to have a meaningful work. So how we can make sure that the people that don't have access to work that provides a cash can contribute to society and that it will provide them uh, a good life. And I want to challenge you a little bit. Uh, I do host even Hacking the Economy. So if you can work with any government or any institution to make something happen, what it would be? Looks like a question time question. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> In front of uh, the gentleman with the um, grey jumper. Thank you very much. Um, Chris, uh, absolutely fascinating, and hats off to you at your initiative. Um, you, you told us when you are going around doing your telling people about this, some people say that's a crazy amount of money, and some people say you know, it's, it's crazily high, some crazily low. Uh, could you tell us what is the general sort of general attitude? And do you feel you're winning people over? But also, you gave the example of Alaska, um, a state with a very small population, I guess. Um, what has what difference has actually been made by the distribution of the oil money to the population there? Okay, and then if you could bring it to the front. So I'm after. <laughs> sorry, there's some round. Okay, so there's going to be three round the back after the three upstairs. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. I'm Janice and I'm a master's student here doing development studies. So I'm thinking like uh, from your perspective, what is the role of say like technology companies in actually solving the problem of inequality? And I'm particularly interested in first of all automation, right? So most of the technology and the economic benefits will be gained by those say like who own the technology, say like firms in the US, but they are actually away taking away say like job opportunities say like in developing countries such as Africa. There was this research by Overseas Development Institute that the cost of a robot in the US might be lower than hiring like a worker in like Africa. So um, from your perspective, if that can be say like a supranational system solving that, maybe for the like the role of like technology giant, how would they be able to solve this problem or contribute towards that? Okay, so are you okay going with those those three? A supranational I mean tech company solution. Uh, I, 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 these, these, are, these are fantastic questions. Um, so why don't I take the, the last one first because I think it's very, um, it's particularly relevant in the moment that we're in, living in now. I mean, um, Facebook, I mean, right now I think Mark Zuckerberg is testifying uh, in the, the US Congress to speak to Facebook's, um, certainly the role in the Cambridge Analytica uh, uh, scandal and in general data privacy and protection in the United States. And I think, um, I think that conversation is well overdue. I think most Facebook users don't have a great sense of what data they're creating, and not just Facebook, on Google and Amazon, et cetera, it's, but it's primarily Facebook and, and Google. Users don't have a great sense of the, 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 the amount of information and data that they're creating. Who exactly has access to it? Who owns it or doesn't own it? When is it, when is it monetized and sold? How is it boxed up? How is it marketed? How they can be targeted? What happens if I want to leave the platform? Can I take my data with me? I mean, the, the questions, there are so many. And um, we're, we're just beginning, I hope, I, I think, I, and I hope to have a kind of, um, of broad-based discussion as a society about the relationships that we have to all of these tech companies as, as people. And I think if there's, um, and by the way, it's not just about data, it's about 
democracy, civil discourse, mm -hmm. hacking of elections, the attention economy about many things. But if there's one thing that is particularly relevant to the discussion tonight that I would highlight, I was referring to it earlier, it's that none of our individual data on its own is arguably that valuable to Facebook or to Google. All of our data collectively is extremely valuable. I mean, the, the market caps of, of the, the big four, big five tech companies are in the trillions of dollars. Now, their argument is that, well, and we get to use Facebook for free. And that's you know, the way that the business works. I think that there is an opportunity to ask the question about whether or not, and I'm really curious what you guys think about this too, um, about whether or not data is the oil of the 21st century. And by that, I mean an, 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 uh, a natural resource that um, a few companies have figured out how to harvest, a, a part of the commonwealth, if you will, to use a term that was mentioned earlier. So just as the oil is under the ground, we should all, we all breathe the same air, we walk on the same earth, the oil, you could argue, is part of the commonwealth, we all have a right to some of it. The data that we create is something that we create as a social body. And um, the question is, is whether or not um, that, uh, that value can be more democratically shared. Should those profits just go to companies like Facebook or Google, or should we all have a piece of that, a kind of dividend from a, uh, from a kind of people's, uh, 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 people's data fund, if, if you will? I think there's a really good case to be made that we should. And uh, there are, of course, very big questions about, okay, well, how much? How are you going to capitalize that? Who, who, what's a data company and what's not? And we, we can, and if it's of interest, could talk about those things more. But I think the first step, before we even get to the international context, is at a, at a, national, as, at a national level in the United States and in Europe and, and the, the places where these companies make bulk of their profits, asking a kind of question of, of, of whether or not some kind of people's data fund is possible. Now, yet again, not at the, ex at the expense of other data and privacy protections and all other kinds of regulations that, that, that we need as, as a piece of the puzzle, as, as, a part of, um, as a part of the solution. It would be very similar to what they have um, in Alaska, but with a, with a different kind of natural resource. So maybe before I go to the other questions, if we could just spend, I'm really curious what yeah. you guys think Cam about Cam knows this. a yeah, lot about no, this. I, I mean, <laughs> I think that's, oh, and Cam knows an awful lot about this. Um, for me, it's, it's so much more than just about the, the, uh, um, just the data, just talking about the data, but it's also it's talking about the public sphere and the knowledge that is shared and created in those spaces online, if we're talking about um, the internet in particular and the platforms that occupy those spaces. So if, you know, for me, I think we should nationalize search. You know, I think that will create, a, that will really shift stuff, you know, that will make a really big difference. I think there, if we're talking about um, co-ownership of data in some way, or at least co-benefit of the circulation of data, then, you know, that could also feed back into, um, you know, supporting media projects, journalism projects in the public good, not-for-profit in the public good. You know, there, there could be all sorts Those of ways. Those were the days. In which, <laughs> yes, indeed. When that actually could really quite revolutionise 
what is going on with the data companies. You know, some of the original ideas that were there, it, it, the birth of the internet, if you like, and the World Wide Web, you know, taking it back to those notions that this was about something that was owned by everybody. I think it, it goes back to one of the earlier questions of about you know, cash is king, you know, maybe capital is the kingmaker. If we're going to get away from those things, we actually have to start talking about co-ownership. We have to start talking about removing power from where it is currently concentrated mm. and sharing it out a bit. And that requires quite radical thinking, actually. But it's, the time is now. Those mm. ideas are being talked about. We have participatory budgeting. We have the places called the rebel cities where you know, there, there is a real attempt to have more participatory democracy. Um, certainly, companies seem to be aware of the fact that data is the dual and seem to be treating it that way and stockpiling it and maybe not even making money for many years because so, they know further down the line they'll be able to translate this data. Um, but I think we need to deal with the fact that these are huge monopolies and they need to be broken down uh, because essentially that gives them a massive power over us in all sorts of ways and in the ways that they've been able to do things very covertly and without the full information of people but also it means I think the incentivization there was a good uh, theory that I read about um, in the FT a little while ago that talked about kind of entrepreneurs and it said that in a society, there's kind of the same number of entrepreneurs, but what changes is what incentivizes them. So because we've incentivized short-term growth, that's created the kinds of problems that we've seen in society. And so, for example, I speak to people who uh, would re be really happy with the free movement of healthcare data to solve like rare diseases and so on. But we have a healthcare system that lots of money is being spent on it, certainly in America, but the actual new drugs that are being created, like something like 83% of them are not even innovative. So all of these incentives like matter to what comes out of this data and what comes out of the things that we do with it. So I think ownership and returning that to something other than a single company is really, really important to it. Uh, just a, another thing, like I do have a bit of skepticism about the idea of like what tech can do, and that's specifically because in Silicon Valley, there's a huge amount of inequality um, and there's a huge amount of homeless people and that concerns me that what we need is actually a conversation that involves working people and what it is that they need um, because we've created like a whole a techno woo about um, tech guys and unfortunately, they aren't the only guys with the answers. Um, I think uh, coming to the kind of homeless thing, I'd be very, very concerned about drawing a new border around what work is. Um, we did some research in India where they uh, created the biggest biometrics database in the world. Yeah. And uh, the, the initial idea was that it was to help the rural and the poorest and the marginalized people. And those are the people who faced like really extreme consequences of exclusion. And there's loads of reasons why they wouldn't want to be on a database given their background or their work or if they're sex workers or whatever, being forced to be put onto this system. So the way that we rationalize what is good for these people, it has to be changed by involving them and asking them what they need. And also who's doing it? Because I mean, I think the interesting thing about oh, making data, um, nationalized data, who's the government? 
because Modi's government and the Indian system, you know, sold it, as we saw on WikiLeaks, actually just sold the data to French and English uh, security companies. Mm. So it's not just monetization, it's, it's how, that, how the state then intervenes in the monetization of that data. But it's, it's actually incredibly good that we still have, we're having this debate too, progressive taxation, feminism, and now we're having like <laughs> data, data commons. I'm really, really pleased. And so I want to add in one little <laughs> thing, just because I think it's really brought it to my mind just hearing that conversation <laughs> then, is that we're also talking about it. When you talk about universal basic income or guaranteed income, it's about individuals. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need to address it collect as collectives. So. Okay, well, we're going well, to bring the microphone I, I just didn't respond there, to the other two questions, yeah, yeah. so if I could, I'll give very brief, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, brief yeah. responses. I think, um, you know, the, uh, the success of the argument, the, the question ar around that is, um, yeah, I mean, right now in the United States, this is the, the conversation that we're having, economic inequality and opportunity. I mean, the, the fact that median wages are flat for 40 years and the cost of, of living is up by 30%. There's a big conversation about what's the best way to address it. Is a guaranteed income uh, uh, the, right, the, the right response? Um, uh, and how does it work with all of these other solutions? So. Um, the, the issue is on the radar of politicians, business leaders, civil society re leaders in a way that it, it just wasn't a year ago or two years ago. So I think that's, that's promising. I, I, I think it has to be not at the exclusion of these other issues, but all of these things have to, to exist um, and, and be debated. Um, in tandem. There is some evidence on what happens in Alaska. People don't drop out of the labor force. Generally, uh, they are happy with the, the, the benefit. They prefer to pay more in taxes than to give it up. Um, we need more research on what happens in Alaska. There's a more robust research base on the earned income tax credit, the six uh, cities that ran guaranteed income experiments 50 years ago, and uh, a band of, the, of Native Americans who have a guaranteed income in in North Carolina, actually. Um, so there, 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 is, there is a good amount of evidence, but Alaska, ironically, is a place where we need to, um, to invest in more. And just to the first question around what would be the one thing I would do, I would challenge legislators to begin somewhere to, on, on, um, on this work. So even if it's at a more modest level, uh, uh, I, I think that we, we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, that we, we need to begin and begin experiments, begin pilots, but also begin at the level of public policy, providing people with an income floor, because I think that the results, if they're in line with what we've seen historically and globally, um, would be very, very promising. Great. We're going upstairs like the speed now round, the, the rapid round. Yeah, yeah. Over here. I'm afraid there was just three up there who had their hands up, so if you begin there, and then there at the front, and then the woman over there in the beige coat. I'm afraid, and then we have to go down to the back where people have been having their hands up for a long while, and then over here. All in and 10 minutes be, or less. I was going to say, that'll be Ready, it. set, so go. Three questions. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, uh, hello, Chris. I'm a software engineer, and I want to challenge you on what, the, what you said about the tech companies can do. Well, I think that uh, t uh, texting data is not enough. The, I think the power of, the, of, the, of these tech companies comes from mainly two things. First of all, is their lack of accountability. That means what they do is a black box it's not understandable. So I think, isn't it um, necessary to get their source code to open? You know, you know what the source code is? It's like the code that, uh, that tells you what, uh, what, 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 to, what, to, what to do with the data. Yeah, I mean, maybe not immediately, but certainly, eventually, we need to get to understand 
uh, what the source code, what Facebook is crunching that data for. That's the first thing. And about texting data is not enough. We need to text the complexity of the systems. By that I mean, maybe we need to text, up, text the, the source code, the length of the source code. We need to text about the, the amount of power used to process the data. Because you know you can have a lot, you can have a lot of data by by storing newspaper, but you know just by but just by searching uh, you know a, a certain character is different from you know all those big data that identifies the the, the predictor lives of a people. So we need to text not just the data. We need to text the the source code. We need to text the complexity. How more complex the code is, the more text it should be. <laughs> Uh, if just in front, just in front here. Uh, I, I wanted to ask a question specifically about the design of your proposed scheme. If I understood you were proposing that it would only go to the lowest 40% of people, and I just wanted to challenge you on that, because what, what worries me about that is that you end up with the system becoming very politically contested in the same way that welfare has become contested in the UK and the US. It seems to me it wouldn't be hard for opportunistic politicians and the media to frame it as something that you're, you're not getting, other people are getting. And if you look around the world, in the UK and the US, the most successful programs have always been programs that are completely universal, like the NHS in the UK, Social Security in the US. So do you not think that giving this benefit, if you want to call it that, to people like Bill Gates is actually the price you have to pay to secure public support for it? <laughs> okay, so over to the woman in the beige coat. Hi, um, I actually have an issue with uh, when you said the sometimes the simplest solution is the best solution and relating to two numbers that you mentioned. Um, the first thing you said is that $250,000 should be the cap um, uh, for anyone above that should be taxed more in the United States. And the other thing you said was that people under $50,000 should receive $500 a month. Um, I think what you are missing there, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, is the size of a family, for example. So I can use my own personal example with my family. I have five siblings. My dad may make $300,000 a year, but spread out among eight people, it's a lot different than $300,000 a year spread out among <coughs> three people. So that $7,000 lost makes a huge difference for us where it wouldn't make it for a smaller family. Similarly, if you have people making um, $45,000 a year and they have no children and they're receiving $500 a month, that's going to go a lot further than people making $45,000 a year and they have two children. Uh, so I think that you need to include that somewhere and I'd like to hear how you would do that. Okay, so that's the specifics. We're going to take more questions because I, I realise we've got seven minutes left. Um, so over there, Could then you over seven there. Seven minutes on just one of those questions. <laughs> then, 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 then. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just let people ask their questions, and we'll see how quickly you can answer them. <laughs> I just think my my question follows the previous two actually. Um, I don't know why you're, you're against uh, a proper, I would call it universal basic income, which has been proposed, which is to have a decent level for everybody, absolutely everybody in the country, whatever they earn, at the level of something like a minimum wage. You would remove all the stigmatization of the welfare benefit system. You would make it possible for people to uh, not take rotten jobs <laughs> and rotten conditions, so you would improve the whole employment structure and the, and the nature of work. Um, and it would be very easy to administer. Would you like to, um, I don't know why you've picked this particular figure. It seems like another benefit. 
Okay, so another universal question. Then over there, the gentleman, yes, who's had his hand up patiently. Uh, most people have had their hands up patiently, so I am very sorry that I can't get you all involved. Yeah, over there, yeah. Do you agree with me that without the radical reform of the intellectual property rights, the inequality will continue? Unless we geeks economy and all that sort of thing, the intellectual property rights is to be completely radicalized. Okay, great. So, and then we'll just do very, very patiently over there. And then, there, you've had your hand. And that will be it. <laughs> just put your hand. Chris, thanks very much for, for your talk. I, th I think it's been really good to hear, hear your views. Um, something that you mentioned earlier was about the low rate of entrepreneurialism in, in the US. And you know, we see the US as the entrepreneurial hub of the world. And it's actually, uh, while there is a huge moral argument, which is absolutely probably the more important side of this debate, I think an unintended or, you know, uh, or an overlooked benefit of this whole debate is the impact it could have for entrepreneurialism. The fact that you could take into an extreme, if no one had a job to do tomorrow, think about the number of new Facebooks that would be created, and you wouldn't <laughs> need very many of them to actually take off, to actually be able to fund the entire um, project and an entire infrastructure of that. I just want to hear your thoughts on whether this could be the trigger for entrepreneurialism's uh, resurgence. And then finally over <coughs> here. Hi, uh, sorry for my um, interjection there. Um, I'm, I'm coordinator of Basic Income UK and also was former chair of uh, Basic Income Europe, So, and I've just been dealing with this collectivity question, all right, this, this idea that public services are somehow more collective than paying everybody an individual payment. I just want to counterpoise to that my experience on income support where as mothers we we had inform, you know, we were able to form informal childcare networks and helped each other sort of work or not, you know, not work as we could. All right, and that that basic income. I really believe that basic income would facilitate a lot of these sorts of informal collective networks. Okay, as opposed to when you're dealing with the state in any way, whether that's welfare or services, it really doesn't feel very collective. All right, it no, feels like something coming from above. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, and we'll have to close um, now. So if you've got three and a half minutes, if you could. <laughs> this is truly, I mean, to me. Speed questioning. Well, I mean, um, I have lots of thoughts. It will not be a surprise. But the, um, the, 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 these kinds of questions are exactly the ones that um, I think we need to be asking. I, I think I'll, I'll take um, the bulk of these seem to be structural about specifically what I'm talking about and, and how to design it. So why don't I take those as, um, as a group, as, as sort of a final thought, but, the, but to speak to a couple of the other ones just very quickly. I totally agree on entrepreneurialism. Uh, you know, the, the fact that new business starts are at a, a historic low is, runs right up against the cultural mythology. Right, because we all see the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Facebook stories, all of these stories, and people think that entrepreneurialism is alive and well in America, and it's not. Now, you need a lot of different things to support entrepreneurship, but one thing you need to get going is time. And the only way that you can have the freedom to be able to, to decide the, of uh, what you do with your time is cash, is the ability to either forego of some hours in a job that you don't feel is, 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 is productive or, um, or, 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 or choose a different, a, a, different, a different route. I was at a, 
event in New York a few weeks ago with somebody who has won one of these Y Combinator, one of these startup accelerator things, and he was elated and also broke down crying in the Q&A because he wasn't going to be able to take it. He could not afford because it provided him uh, with several thousand dollars, which would be enough for other kids who have parents who can provide them with a basic income of sorts or some other kind of supplement, but he just had nothing else. His, he was a first-generation immigrant, and it was, it was a moment that was just a stark reminder of, of how we, we squelch entrepreneurship by forcing people to live so close to the brink so that they're just, you know, trying to tread water um, to stay, stay afloat. So I, I totally agree. Um, on, the, on the structural things, so I, I would say, listen, I, I, I think that the, the, the policy that I outline in the book is the best way of doing this. It is not the only way of doing it. So I would encourage those of you who have, um, us, uh, who are skeptical of different levels or of family sizing or, or this and that, let's engage in debate. Like, let's go to Medium or go to a blog or go to op-ed and, you know, post your, the, the point of the book is to spark this kind of debate, not to pass down any kind of gospel from the mountaintop. A lot of people have been working on a basic income for decades before me, and I, I have my view on, on how all of this should work, but I do not want anybody here to think that um, it's, it's, it's an answer to all of the questions. I, I would rather have us all treat it as a starting point, a kind of provocation for, for, um, for where things can go. Just to speak to these, these particular concerns, um, I chose the bottom 40%, which is also related to some of the universe, universality questions, because I am interested in what we can do today. The cost of what I put out there is $300 billion. That's um, an enormous number in the, the context of the American budget, uh, but, but still very much doable. It's a tenth of what a true universal basic income would cost. In the United States, that would cost you a couple trillion dollars. The entire budget of the United States government is $3 trillion. So it's not to say that that's not something that we should, we should talk about. Uh, it, it is to say that I think that we, we need to think about uh, what can be done today so that when uh, legislators, policymakers, candidates for office get asked about this, they can't just say, oh, that's crazy talk. That's $2 trillion, way too expensive, five times what we spend on defense. Instead, I think we need to, 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 to um, begin somewhere today. And that does interact with the question of why just the bottom 40 percent in um, uh, I, I do think that people who need the, the money the most should be the first served by it. And I, I, would, I would disagree with the point that universal programs are the most resilient. Some of our most resilient programs in the U.S. are um, food stamps and SNAP. The earned income tax credit, which is a very targeted benefit that's been expanded by Republicans and Democrats alike. Medicaid is now uh, significantly expanded thanks to the ACA, and that's a key reason that healthcare was not completely torn apart, just partially torn apart, by the, uh, by the Republicans last year. So I, d I think the idea that we've got to make this universal to make it resilient isn't, isn't in my view, um, quite right. And then one, one last question. I, I do, there are a lot of people who disagree with me on the, the householding idea. So specifically that you should adjust the size of the benefit depending on how many kids you have, um, whether or not you're married, this and that. I do come out of the guaranteed income, universal basic income belief that, that inscribes this more as a kind of, of moral obligation, a kind of human right. And I do think that it should be structured on a per capita basis so that each 
individual gets it. To embrace the freedom to enter and exit relationships as, uh, as it makes sense. One of the uh, uh, outcomes that came from the studies in the 70s was that divorce rates went up in Seattle's experiment. Now later that was debunked, but at the time it was viewed as a, as a, as a nuclear bomb for the idea because, oh my God, the family is coming apart. Now 20, 30 years, well, 40 years later, we say, actually, no, that empowered um, a lot of women who weren't <laughs> participating in the labor force to exit relationships that they, that, 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 um, they didn't find uh, rewarding. So it's not to say uh, that um, I, I don't think there's a, anything magical about $500 versus $400 or $600, nor is there something magical about $250,000. These are numbers I've thought a lot about, and I do think that they are the right benchmarks to, to use. But I think that the larger point is we should be asking those people who have done the best in the modern economy, often because of luck and forces out of their control, people, people like me, to be paying their fair share to make sure that everybody else can benefit from the economic prosperity, that everybody else has the opportunity to chase their chase their own dreams. That's the top line point that, that I'm motivated by, that I want the book to make, and, and I, to be frank, want everybody here to, to take away. And let's engage in a robust debate about 250, 200, 300, the levels and the amounts, because the more people that we have involved in that debate, the, the more robust it'll be, and I think the closer it'll bring us to some kind of, of uh, much needed change. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Thank you very much. And I think it's fantastic that we've had this debate, that you've started this debate with us, that we've now got allies in high places, those of us who've been fighting some of these courses for a long while and have the bruises to prove it. Um, it's really, really important that the narrative changes on a really large scale. And I'm really impressed that you've been able to do this and you're traveling around the world exhausted doing it. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank, <And> you. <laughs> thank you, Cam. And thank you, Natalie, as well, for engaging. And sorry I couldn't take everybody's questions, <laughs> but I hope you will do exactly what Chris asks and, and keep these debates going. Keep them on the agenda. Keep pointing out the, the issues that we have to face. Chris is going to be outside for 15 minutes to sign the book. Um, so, it's all very precise. Um, but thank you very much for being here. Thank you.